Well, Tom, I just want to make sure that I heard you right. Did you say 8.30 a.m.? Okay. And all God's people said, whoa. Yes, 8.30 a.m. And uh, be encouraged. We're hoping that uh, this will be a uh, short-term uh, Sunday morning, a, a situation that will just be for the short term and that um, God will go before us and continue to work out the details. We are very thankful that we have the opportunity to go back and provide our children with a, a um, familiar setting, uh, so to speak. And so, um, yeah, we're, we're looking forward to see, uh, seeing what God does. And so we will have the opportunity to do that. And we'll start early and um, Lord willing, we'll even be able to uh, resume equipping our afterward, which was something that I think everybody is more familiar with than having it before service. So we'll see what God continues to do. Well, if you're joining us today for the very first time, your first time guest, we're thrilled to have you here. And if you're one of our regular members, it's always a pleasure to see you as well. But I um, wanted to share uh, for our guests, our church family is currently going through a series called the Cornerstone Ministry Pillars. And this series features for us the philosophy of ministry for our church. And as we gather weekly, uh, and as different ministries take place in our church, there are things that we want everyone in our church family to be familiar with. Cornerstone Bible Church is a praising church. And all God's people said, amen, right? We are a praising church. Whether we gather corporately on Sunday or in a smaller setting, uh, within different ministries, we want to be praising God with passion. And this reflects the heartbeat of our church. We desire to pray God, praise God for the salvation that we have in Christ. We want to praise God for the sanctifying work that he continues to do in our lives. We want to praise God for the future glorification that's promised to all of us who believe. And we want to express our praise through music, and we want to express our praise through physical expressions that honor the Lord to the utmost. Cornerstone Bible Church is also a preaching church. The, the Word of God provides direction for all of our ministries, and preaching the Word with precision is the goal and the desire for every person that will ever stand behind this pulpit and for all of our teachers that will be teaching in the classrooms. We are a gospel-preaching, Bible-based ministry committed to the full counsel of the Scriptures. Cornerstone Bible Church is also a praying church. Praying to God with fervency is a ministry pillar that we were introduced to last week. And this allows us to express our love, our trust, our dependency upon God for all of our needs. And it is his desire, as his, uh, we're his adopted children, sons and daughters, that we would come to him based on the redemptive work of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And last week we had a brief introduction to this vital ministry pillar for our church. And after we conclude with uh, the overview of the prayer pillar today, next week we will finish our series with our fourth and final ministry pillar, which is progressing 
in evangelism and discipleship. Okay, and we'll need a couple of weeks to cover that. Today's ministry pillar again is praying to God with fervency. And we're using James chapter 5 as a platform for this pillar. And so if your Bibles are with you today, if you'd uh, open those up uh, to James chapter 5, we're going to go ahead and get started. Allow me just to give a brief overview of what we covered last week. Actually, we're going to go ahead and start by reading our passage together. Let's do that. James chapter 5, verses 13 through 18 say this, Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins one to another, and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Our passage we shared last week provides three reasons why praying with fervency should be a pillar for your life and for our church. And we looked at the first reason together. And it was this, praying to God reveals our dependency. It expresses our dependency upon Him. Today we're going to get to the second and the third reason. Praying to God, right? Uh, Praying to God specifically in fervency reveals God's provisions. And lastly, as we'll see And our third reason, praying to God reveals God's power. And I believe that these notes are in your bulletin for you. And if not, you'll be able to track with us. And so last Sunday, we tackled the first reason together and we engaged all three questions that come in the opening two verses of this passage. These three questions are followed by three commands which test a believer's dependency upon God in prayer. And the first question asked, is any among you suffering? This led to other implied questions, such as what type of suffering is being talked about here? How are believers to respond to spiritual suffering? How does praying express our dependency upon God when we're suffering spiritually? Our passage helped us answer these questions. Our Heavenly Father desires for us to be dependent upon Him for wisdom and guidance for all of our needs, especially when we're faced with spiritual trials and needs. The second question asks, is anyone cheerful? How is praising God in prayer an expression of our dependency upon Him? God allows us to express Dependency upon Him even through our praising 
of him. The response of singing or singing songs of praise, we learned, is a prayerful response for believers to employ fervently. And it's also a unique way that we can express our dependency upon the Lord as we acknowledge his provisions of grace that allow us to have an inner attitude of cheer. Well, there's a third question asked. Is anyone among you sick? And here God grants us insight into how intercessory prayer allows us to also acknowledge our dependency upon him. How does praying with fervency move us beyond our own individual needs to be praying for the needs of others? And our passage provides answers. When we are without strength, right? That's what it meant to be sick. We learned that in the, in, in the passage last week. When, to be sick, it means to be literally without strength. God has ordained for us to call on the praying ministry of other believers within the church. And I didn't get to share this quote last week because there was really no place for it to fit in, but it relates to intercessory prayer, and I loved it so much, I I just wanted to to share it with you, and we're going to fit it in right here. And it's this. Uh, One pastor said, Intercession is truly universal work for the Christian. No place is closed to intercessory prayer. No continent, no nation, no organization, no city, no office. There is no power on earth that can keep intercessory prayer out. It's so true. And more will be said about intercessory prayer as we continue to journey through our passage this morning. But understanding reason number one as to why praying with fervency should be a pillar of your life and of the church is a priority. Praying with fervency reveals our dependency upon God. I also shared last week that this passage allows us to see a a corporate dynamic of prayer that goes beyond us as individuals. And we'll see this develop even more as we consider our second and third reasons. Our passage Again, three reasons why praying with fervency should be a pillar for your life and for the church. Reason number one, it reveals our dependency. Reason number two, it reveals God's provision. And I want us to see a big picture of this passage. There's a logical uh, progression that's taking place. In the opening verses, we see the petitions. We see the needs. And we learned last week that those petitions can also come in the form of praises that we bring God our praises because we acknowledge him and the grace given to us, right, is even a provision from him. It comes from him. And we, we, can, we can ask for more of those provisions. We can ask for that grace. It enables us to praise him even more. We see petitions in verses 13 and 14, and it's followed by the provisions or results in verses 15 and 16, okay? We see the answers of, uh, of the prayer revealed in the next two verses, and then it ends with the power or testimony displayed through God's work in verses 17 and 18. And this is just how all prayer works. It's how true prayer works. There's petitions, okay? And then uh, there's provisions, is God answers, and sometimes it comes and allows us uh, to, to praise him. Sometimes 
Um, well, either way, we should be praising him, but those petitions, sometimes the provision leads to a yes or a no answer, right? And there's power. There's power. And that's the, the next um, uh, aspect that we see and we'll see through Elijah's example. There, God, when he answers prayer, it displays his power. And sometimes there's great power from God when he says no. When he says no to us as believers, it allows him to put his power on greater display. Even his own son prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he said, Father, if it would be your will that this cup would pass me, right? And what did God say, ultimately? What did he say? He said no. And that revealed something. And that revealed the power. And it led to... um, all kinds of other petitions that would open up as a result of that great redemptive work that the Lord Jesus Christ endured for our behalf. Our passage has a progression. And petitions we saw last week can stem from suffering to singing, from problems to praises, and everything in between. And now we get to see the anticipated results or the provisions from God. Verse 15 starts with, And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. And it starts with a conjunction. And the and is making a connection to the preceding text. And it offers the results or the anticipated sequence of what has just been done. And we see this in the future tenses that are in the text will restore, will raise, provides a sense of anticipation of the prayers that were just offered being answered in a matter of time. And the prayer of faith offered will restore the one who is sick. The prayer of faith mentioned is linked to the prayer that was just offered by who? The elders, right? The elders just came and and offered Prayer And though faith could potentially be a reference to the body of truth known as the faith, most theologians believe it is more probable that here it's referring to the faith exercised by those who just prayed, uh, by, by the believers, which in this instance happens to be the elders. And James implies the necessity of faith in verse 15. But he says it directly back in chapter 1. And we looked at this last week. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect results so that you'll be perfect and complete, right? We, we, We know that. But if you lack wisdom, what's it say that we're to do? But if any of you lacks wisdom... Pray to God. Ask. And he gives to all generously and without reproach. But then it goes on in verse 6, and it says something that's so important for us to see. But the one who asks must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. And then it goes on to say in verse 7, Verse 8, that man, that man ought not to expect to receive anything from the Lord. He's double-minded. He's unstable in all his ways. Why? Because his faith is not real. 
And when we come to God, we pray in faith. True prayer is a true exercise of genuine faith and trust in God to provide us with all that we're asking him when we're praying according to his will. One day, George Mueller, a committed man of prayer, began praying for five of his unsaved friends. After many months, one of them came to the Lord. Ten years later, two others were converted. It took 25 years before the fourth man was saved. Mueller persevered in prayer until his death for his fifth friend. And throughout those 52 years, he never gave up hoping that his friend would trust in Christ. His faith was rewarded. For soon after Mueller's funeral, the last one was saved. And it's even reported that somebody went up to George Mueller and asked him before he died about this fifth man that he was praying for. And he, he asked him if he really believed that God was going to save him. And Mueller turned to that person and said, do you really think that God would have me wasting my time all these years praying for him if he wasn't going to save him? Wow. That is faith. And it accurately reflects the prayer offered in faith in our passage. And it should reflect our heartbeat as we pray in faith. There's a confidence that we have when we come to God. We are putting our faith in him with the right motives to answer according to his will. Praying with faith and fervency reveals God's Provision. Well, what is the result of the prayer of faith? Verse 15 shares that the prayer offered in faith for the one who was literally without strength or bedridden will restore the one who is sick, or your translation might say will save the one who is sick. There is no reference to future salvation of the soul here. So a more fluid uh, translation to be restored or to be healed is what it's calling for. And even the next portion of the verse which says, and the Lord will raise him up, can literally be translated, help him to rise. And it's speaking in a physical sense. God's provision to restore is physical right here. And it's much like going to the junkyard and you see a 1957 Chevy and maybe you're a classical car guy and you say, I'm going to take that car home and I'm physically, I'm going to restore it. I'm going to put the, the effort into it, right? I'm going to fix it up, and I'm going to get it up and running again. And this is what is taking place with the physical restoration of the one who was sick. The person is being renewed to strength. They're literally getting back up and running again. Praying with fervency reveals God's provision, which in this case is physical restoration. But there are spiritual provisions, which we see at the end of verse 15, going into 16. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. Okay, we saw that physical aspect. And then it says, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Spiritually, the added assurance, if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him, recognizes that the sickness or the physical ailment may be due to sin. And whenever 
sickness strikes at a human level, or death for that matter, whenever it strikes, this is always a possibility. And one commentator said this, whenever sickness does come, it is desirable for each believer to examine himself or herself to determine before the Lord if the sickness is due to personal sin. General or common sickness, uh, we understand this, is due to the result of living in a fallen world, right? It stems all the way back to Adam's sin. We all understand this, but sometimes sin strikes and it's directly related to specific sin in a believer's life and spiritual reflection may be required. And there's a spiritual connection to the physical effect of what's being experienced in the body, okay? There's, we see this, you know, the, um, there's a, the, the word psychosomatic is that there's a mind-body connection, right? S- uh, psycho for mind and soma, Greek for, for body. Well, there's a, a pneuma uh, somatic connection as, as well. There's a spiritual to body connection. And I want us to see this. And if you'll turn with me to Psalm 32, I want to provide this example because it really, it really aligns with everything that James is trying to teach us. Psalm 32. And this is a Psalm of David. He has committed sin with Bathsheba and he's also done the unthinkable. He's made it worse by sending her husband Uriah to the front line um, where he was ultimately killed. So to to some degree um, responsible for, for murder as well. He arranged it. And we see in this psalm what, is, um, what, what he's describing starting in verse 3. We see the physical consequences of his sin. This is what he says starting in verse 3. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer, Selah, pause, meditate, think on that for a moment. And here David paints a graphic picture and shares the impact of unconfessed sin in a believer's life. His body, literally, he felt like his bones, and I don't know if you've ever been so sick, right? You feel like it's just down to, it's in your bones. It's just, you, you feel so sick. It's like, it's, it's overtaking you. And that's a sense of what David was feeling. He said he felt like he was wasting away. There was a heaviness. There was a lethargy to his, his footsteps. His vitality, literally what it means here is his, his life juices were drained. He felt like he was extremely dehydrated. He was so fatigued because of his sin. His energy was depleted. And if I can just go so far as to borrow a word from James chapter 5 to describe his sickness, he was without strength. That's what he's describing. 
So what did the Lord lead David to do? What was his response to his physical trial and battle with weakness in his bones? Let's look at verse 5 of Psalm 32. I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Selah. Meditate. And after all of what David has been through, and all that he has experienced, the Holy Spirit superintended David to record this for believers who would follow for us today that we would see this. And what counsel was he led to offer? After the confession of his sin, what counsel does David have for us? Look at verse 6. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Instructs us to pray. Confess and pray. Verse 5, he confessed his sins. He brought them to the Lord. And then what counsel does he give? He says, pray to God in a time when he may be found. Or before God has put an end to your life because of unrepentant sin, a flood of great waters is a picture of judgment. And this was his call to the godly, okay? To, to, to pray to God. This wasn't judgment for unbelievers, Pray to God. Confess your sins. Come to Him. And that has to be done individually. That has to be done before intercessory prayer can even take place, right? What good will it do for me if I'm sick in the hospital and I call to the elders to come pray to me to the church? I call for my care group to come pray for me at the church. And I have besetting sin in my life that I've been clinging to, that I've not repented of, that I've not gone to the Lord for forgiveness of. And I'm going to come and I'm going to ask godly people to pray for me when my heart isn't even right, when I haven't even dealt with the sin myself. It has to take place at the individual level. And then with a a right heart motive of prayer after confession and prayer takes place, you can call for uh, reinforcement. You can call for the troops to come in and join with you in intercessory prayer to pray accordingly. And so the application for us is to follow suit. Fervent prayer reveals God's gracious provisions, and certainly being restored physically is one such provision. Another provision of the Lord comes through the church and the prescribed prayer that grants us access to other believers who we can confess our sins to and pray with. And this is Care Group 101, okay? This is this is. This is care group 101 in the ministry. This is what we do as a church when we gather together in those groups that we call care groups and, and, and express our love and care for one another. And for those of you in care group, you've most likely experienced the opportunity to confess your sins and struggles with another believer in your group. And care group is intended in every way to be a safe place Uh, a a ministry um, 
a, a place of ministry where you have the opportunity to do this. Now, let me also just say that not all care groups are created equal, okay? There's different dynamics that are going on, and maybe this hasn't been your experience. Maybe the Lord's even going to use his word today to encourage uh, um, someone or a group that, hey, maybe this needs to be going on a little bit more than it is. And if it isn't happening as often as you prefer, please allow me to have a shepherding moment. This isn't your cue to jump ship, okay? But it could be that if this spiritual environment doesn't exist or isn't a strength of your group, that the Lord might use you, my friend. The Lord might use you to grow it and to cultivate it within your group. Mutual ministry is a shared responsibility in the body of believers. And in Ephesians 5.21, which is actually a description of the Spirit-filled life, right? It's be filled with the Spirit. And, and one of the descriptions in participial form comes in verse 21, and it calls us to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Ensuring mutual confession and prayer should be promoted by everyone. Care group leaders, to the members, to us reaching out and engaging believers who aren't yet even in care group, who don't have access to that type of ministry yet. And oftentimes what happens when spiritual environments don't exist that uh, a person wants, you know what happens, people come to the ch- a church and when, when they don't get that need, when they don't get it, what do they do? What do they do? They leave. They leave. And they go to the next church. And they'll go to see if it's available to them there. And they'll go to the next church. If it's not there, they'll, they'll go again. And it's so sad. It's so sad because God, through his word, could be, would desire for that person, if that ministry doesn't exist, that they could take ownership, that they could take responsibility, that they could um, start a new ministry uh, for the church or enhance an existing ministry so that it's taking place. I mean, they already have established relationships. It makes sense they could just started if it's not taking place. And if praying to God with fervency is to be a pillar for your life and a pillar for our church, then understanding James 5.15 and 5.16 will bless us immensely as we see what God provides through it. In the last part of verse 15, it says, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. And then verse 16, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The reference at the end of verse 15 is, of course, to the person who will be restored by faith through the faithful intercessory prayer of believers, which in this case happens to be the elders. And our English translations appear to imply that there could be a connection to the intercessory prayer and the sick, per, the sick person's committed sins being forgiven. And so I wanted to unpack this just a little bit. And through careful exegesis, we can get a clearer understanding. The perfect verb translated has committed, okay? It supposes a condition where the sinner is now abiding under the consequences of his past sins, 
And the word translated sins stands emphatically before the verb. And everyone in the church says, oh, now I see. This helps me so much. And you guys are so gracious. You're, you're bearing with me. You're, you're allowing me. I, I want, it, it's my responsibility. It's my duty to, to help you understand this. You're trusting me to, to help you see this. And when the, the sins are brought forward in the text like that, there's an emphasis. And they're drawing the, the attention to the fact that there were repeated occasions in the past where the sick person missed doing the known will of God. But God will not withhold healing because of the past sins. And I borrowed some insights from a great commentary um, by Ed, Edmund Hebert uh, on his epistle of James, his commentary on the epistle of James to help us understand where it says, and they will be forgiven him. And they is a reference to his previously committed sins. And this involves a construction in the original language that lumps the sins together and, quote, assures the sick person that forgiveness will be extended to him. The word translated forgiven is the standard New Testament term for forgiveness. It pictures the sins as being sent away so that they are no longer held against him. The promise implies that he has confessed his sins and has determined to turn from them because they are offensive to God, end quote. And so let's just boil this all down. What, so what are we to understand here? What is this saying? First, there is no connection to the intercessory prayer offered by the elders, okay, and the forgiveness of the sick person's sin. And we see this in it's called sacerdotalism when, when priests, and we, if you're ever part of a Catholic church or an Anglican church, this takes place all the time. And this would actually even be a passage that would prove as a proof text, but this is not what it is teaching. And when a, a priest says that he absolves you from your sin, there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, okay? First Timothy 2, 5, I believe, or 2.15. I always get those verses mixed up. Paul says, I'm the chief of all sinners. I think at 2.15, one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, First Timothy 2, 5, right? There is no sacerdotalism, okay? And we want to make sure that we get this right. Second, the sins referenced in verse 15 are previously committed sins, and it's implied that the sick person has already confessed them and sought the Lord's forgiveness. And we've already shared this earlier, right? It would be foolishness for us if there's sin that, that ultimately is responsible for the chastisement that we're receiving and the discipline that we're receiving from the Lord so that we would come to repentance and that we would acknowledge our sin, it would be foolishness to ask for prayer when we have not even made our own hearts. It would negate, it would hinder prayers. I don't, it would hinder their prayers if we were to ask for intercessory prayer. And so we want to make sure that we see this. Now let's tackle verse 16 together. And this is what it says, Therefore, confess your sins. And this is a present active imperative. So it can also be translated, Therefore, make it your habit 
to confess your sins. I'd write that in my Bible. Make it your habit to confess your sins. That's something that should be, be going on regularly in the life of a believer. We should be confessing our sins to God directly, right? Even though we're granted forgiveness through the gospel, we're justified, right? But in the process of sanctification, God has us come and confess our sins when there's a breakdown in the fellowship, when there's a breach in our fellowship. And if we confess our sins, he's what? He's faithful and just to cleanse us, forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. 1 John 2, 9. Okay? And so, um, that, that's what's taking place. Make it a habit to confess your sins. And then it's also a present active, active imperative to pray. Make it your habit to pray for one another so that you may be healed, that you may be restored. And that healing here in this context could be of, of anything. It could be um, of a, a fracture in a relationship within the church. It could be spiritual. It could be physical. And here we see the corporate dynamic of prayer unleashed. Praying to God with fervency reveals God's provisions. And two of the greatest provisions from God that come through prayer are the purity, really three, purity and protection for believers that comes through prayer and also fellowship for his people that comes through fervently praying together. Confessing sin to one another and praying for one another go hand in hand. And James has just spoken of the efficacy and impact that it had on the individual, and now he's opening it up for the wider use. He wants all people to see. And what is meant here by the verb confess, it it literally conveys the thought of an open, frank, and full confession. And I didn't mean to say literally there, because this is what it literally means right here. Literally, it means to say the same thing. That's what it means, to say the same thing. You're like, where are you going with that one? This is what it means, that when, when we confess, that we say the same thing. If there's something that we've done, in our, a, a sin that we've committed, or a sin of commission, or something that we haven't done, maybe a sin of omission, James 4, 17, he who knows what to do, and does not do it, to him it is sin, right? If, if there's something that we haven't done, right, then, then there's, there's a, a, a confession that takes place, and it involves saying the same thing. It's recognizing and calling it for what it is. Say, it, say it's sin. And it's so interesting because people do this all the time. They, they, they say, well, we use words that mask our sin, right? We say, oh, yeah, I've really struggled this week. Um, yeah, um, this has been, you know, our marriage is, going, we have a little bit of difficulty. <laughs> you know, the, the code language, right? That covering language. Oh, there's sin, right? There's sin that's really hard for us. And, and call it what it is. And we, we need to learn to do this as a church. Speak in biblical terms. Sin is defined for us in biblical terms, and that's really a blessing when we're able to do that. You want to know why? Because there's a command, right? And that allows us to go to the scripture that we're going to be able to use that renews our mind so that we can walk accordingly in the Lord's strength, of course. 
And so when we confess, it means we are open and full and acknowledging our personal guilt. And that is what confession is. And believers want to make it their habit of confessing their sin to God and others. And by the way, this is personal sin. It's not a general reference to sin. And that's why it says confess your sins. So where is this to be done? In a confessional with a priest? In an open worship service? Right now? Anyone want to jump up? Confess your sins before the whole church? Is it only to be done at the bedside of believers who are sick? Where is it to be done? One commentator said this, the scene here is not restricted, not to be restricted to a sick chamber, nor does James seem to be thinking of a public worship service. It seems to be a smaller private gathering where confidences are shared for the purpose of mutual help and intercession. The sins confessed seem naturally to relate to their wrongdoings against their brethren, which spoil their fellowship one with another and make it difficult, if not impossible, for them to worship together as the people of God. They also may include sins that burden the conscience of the one confessing and concerning which he feels the need for brotherly intercession for victory. Confession of sin is a Christian duty and a powerful deterrent to sin. And what another great picture of care groups. What a beautiful I believe this is exactly the setting. I believe that this is exactly the setting that was in mind. Maybe you're here today and you desire to have a setting where ministry like this, mutual ministry really exists. And maybe you're hearing the the word care group for the very first time uh, here today. And it's just an opportunity for believers to get together and uh, to provide the one and others for each other and, and to bear the responsibility and the difficulty and the challenge that comes with the Christian life and comes with living in a, a sin-filled world, right? And we have that opportunity. Maybe you're a person that's been at our church for a while and you're not in a care group. And maybe the idea of being transparent or having accountability and confessing your sins to someone else makes you nervous or you're, you're fearful. Can I encourage you? We're all sinners. Welcome to the fellowship. Welcome to the fellowship. We're all sinners. And the only bragging that we can ever do is to brag in the perfect righteousness that has been credited to our account through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we all sin. And we all fall short of the glory of God. And it is our tendency and our human pride to always put our best foot forward. And I shared this in the ministry one training for care group leaders, right? We, we always put our best foot forward. But when we are confessing our sin, it's a willingness, right? There's a humility there. And the, the Lord blesses that humility when we're willing to put that, maybe that not so pretty foot forward. We're willing to share our sin. And being a Christian means that there will be some vulnerability and a need to be real. 
And all of us struggle with different temptations and different lusts. And some of them are the same for people. And so we can encourage each other with accountability. And I shared this at the super care group meeting. I said, this is what it means to be real. Real stands for revealing every aspect of lust. And that is what we want to do when we pray with each other. And I read a quote, and I think it was in J.C. Ryle's booklet, a man falls in public, or a man falls in private long before he ever falls in public. And that is true, right? And that's why we need each other. And that's why the Lord has ordained for us to have the opportunity to confess our sins to one another and to be praying for one another. And maybe you're here today and you're just trying to figure out how to get your life right with God, Okay? First, you need God's forgiveness. That's what you need. You need God's forgiveness, and he's willing to give it to you if you're willing to ask for it. The message of the gospel calls all people to trust completely in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for salvation. And God grants us a new life through our faith and our repentance. Repentance is turning from serving self turning from serving self-interest and to serving God and serving others. And if you're here today and you've never asked God to forgive you for all your sins and expressed a desire that you want to live for him and that you're done living for this world and the dregs of this life and all the emptiness that comes with it, and you're willing to trust in him for salvation, my friend, he is willing to give it to you today. Today is the day of salvation. And not only will God give you his salvation, but he will also give you his insulation. What do I mean by that? God offers his protection and insulation to those who trust in him. God uses accountability and transparency with other believers in great measure to grow us spiritually. And this protects us from ourselves and our own foolishness and our sin nature that actually does what? It encourages us to isolate. It encourages us to isolate ourselves from God. It encourages us to isolate ourselves from other people. Our salvation enables us to live for God and for his glory. And by his divine design, we need Christ to guide us every day. And we can get great support and encouragement and accountability from our brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, we finally arrived at our third and final reason why praying with fervency should be a pillar of our lives and of the church. First reason was that it reveals our dependency. Second reason, it reveals God's provision. And reason number three, praying with fervency reveals God's power. Let's start with the end of verse 16, which will lead us to the remainder of our passage naturally. It says this, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. And here, God describes for us what type of prayer works. There's a specific aspect of prayer that unleashes God's power. It is the effective, or your translation might say fervent. And some translations actually use a combination of those two words, the effectually fervent or effectual fervent prayer. Okay, Both communicate strengths and descriptions about the type of prayer. 
We'll see more about this in just a moment. And then there's the Greek word translated prayer that can also be translated need, petition, or request. And then there's a participle that is translated as it is working. And so I really like the smooth rendition of the ESV for this verse right here. This is what it says. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. That is exactly what the Greek text is communicating right there. And notice our verse. It includes a description of the person praying and calls them righteous. And the word translated righteous could be taken in a theological sense. Describing a person who has confessed their sins and stands justified before God. But what James is emphasizing here is really a motive of the heart in prayer. Earlier in James chapter 4, he just got done acknowledging that there were quarrels and conflicts that existed among some of the brethren. And he challenged them in the opening uh, verses of James chapter 4. It was really an admonishment because they were being self-centered and worldly. And according to the context, many were not praying. And those who were praying, some of the things that they were praying for stem from ungodly motives. And so there's no doubt that when he was writing chapter 5 that he wanted to emphasize praying to God with right or righteous motives. That's what's important. And so now in chapter 5, that is why we get our verse. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Godly motives produce godly prayers, and godly prayers display godly results. Praying fervently with the right motive reveals God's power. I have a question for you. What's the first word that comes to mind um, and you, this is going to happen instantly, so I want you to be ready for it. The first word that comes to mind when you think of power, power. Ah, oh, the power went out. All right? Maybe it is electricity. Maybe it's an earthquake. <laughs> we experience some of those and got to experience the power of that. Maybe tornadoes, if you're from the Midwest. Hurricanes. You're down southeast. Nuclear explosions, right? Nuclear energy has great power. We talked about the sun and how powerful it is last week. Maybe it's bombs, right? Explosions and war. There's great power represented. And my reason for asking this is because all of us in our mind have some preconceived idea of notion when power is, is mentioned. Or something that has power. We think of something. And I believe that the first thing that should come to our minds as Christians when we hear the word power is praying to God with fervency. That's what we think of. That's what we think of when we hear that word power. And there are amazing testimonies of God's power revealed through prayer in the scriptures. And here's what J.C. Ryle shares in his booklet, A Call to Prayer. Nothing seems to be too great, too hard, or too difficult for prayer to do. It has obtained things that seemed impossible and out of reach. It has won victories over fire, air, earth, and water. 
Prayer opened the Red Sea. Prayer brought water from the rock and bread from heaven. Prayer made the sun stand still. Prayer brought fire from the sky on Elijah's sacrifice. Prayer turned the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Prayer overthrew the army of Sennacherib. Well might Mary, Queen of Scots, say, I fear John Knox's prayers more than an army of 10,000 men. Prayer has raised the dead. Prayer has procured the conversion of souls. The child of many prayers, said an old Christian to Augustine's mother, shall never perish. Prayer, pains, and faith can do anything. There's a direct connection seen in the scriptures between the fervency of prayer and the power revealed by God in his answers to those prayers. And James 5 provides an amazing example for us in Elijah. Verse 17 of James chapter 5. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. The record of this event isn't described for us in detail in 1 Kings chapter 17. But the drought for three and a half years proved that Baal, the falsely proclaimed so-called God of rain and fertility, proved that he was impotent, that he had no power before the Lord. And Elijah gives us one of the most notable illustrations of God revealing his power through fervent prayer in the Old Testament. And what's interesting is that those prayers aren't even recorded for us in the scriptures. And I think that's for good reason. Why? Because it's not about, it's, it's, it's not about what was said. It's not about what he, he shared. Ultimately, we, we know this, Right? It's about the one who answers. And this passage provides a very realistic example. Some folks are tempted to think that Christ's example of prayerfulness isn't realistic. Why? Because he was God and we're not. But we're told right here, Elijah, we are told, had a nature just like ours. And the Greek word where we get nature is really emphasizing weakness. It could be rendered that Elijah was a man with weaknesses like ours. And thankfully, the power that is connected with prayer comes from the one who hears and answers the prayer, not the one who prays. And someone once said, prayer is weakness leaning on omnipotence. Hudson Taylor said, the power of prayer has never been tried to its full capacity. If we want to see mighty wonders of divine power and grace wrought in the place of weakness, failure, and disappointment, let us answer God's standing challenge. Quote, Call unto me, and I will answer thee, and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. End quote. And so Cornerstone Bible Church 
I have one question for you. And it's a question that we will answer together as a church, and it's a question that you, every person that can hear the sound of my voice, must answer individually. If the fervent prayer of one righteous man revealed this much power from God, if the fervent prayer of one man with right heart motives revealed this much power from God and accomplished so much, what will happen if a group, an entire congregation, a church with the right motives is praying according to God's will? That gives me chills. That, that, is, that is exciting. It is so exciting. And I'm eager to find out. And I trust that you are as well. And last week we had an opportunity to pass out one of these. It's a, it's a, it was a prayer guide. It's a one-page sheet. I think we have, and you weren't here with us last week, I think we should have some more in the back for you. I folded mine and then I stick it right inside my Bible. I set my alarm on my cell phone for 9.55 a.m. and 9.55 p.m. That gives me five minutes before 10 a.m. starts. Why? Because I want to be praying with the people in this room. Those who are able to do it. At 10 a.m. and 10 p.m. And that we would have these lists of prayers and these things that we could be praying for and that we could have corporate unity as we strive and we plead with God together for all of our needs. For all of our needs. And we're currently meeting in a hotel conference room. And we're praying for, for God to allow us to buy a building. And I don't even like that prayer request, quite honestly. I don't think we need to buy it. I'm, let's pray for God to give us a building. Why? Because he can. And he would. If we would unify and pray with the right heart motives that God, we need a space to meet. And we want to gather every week. And we want to exalt your name. And we want to make disciples in this church. We want to do this. And we're going to stand together. And we're going to plead with God. But it takes effort. It takes effort. And Mark has shared with us when he preached on that message on prayer. It takes effort. It takes discipline to pray. And we have to pray. We have to pray. There's, there's always needs. There's always needs. We see Mike and Sue Thomas here every week. And just this week, Mike uh, uh, fell, right, Sue? He fell. He, he broke his leg. He's currently in a VA hospital in Long Beach. And, and it's going to be a real challenge for him. And he needs our prayers. He needs us to uh, encourage him. Andrew and Thea, Thea's moms, currently in stage four, terminal with cancer, not sure what her spiritual condition is, where she's at before the Lord. We need to be praying as a church family. She has a brother, Teddy, and um, most likely isn't saved, needs the Lord. And we need the opportunity for the gospel to be communicated and that God would use this ordained time, which is going to be difficult for their family, but that he would draw Teddy to saving faith. And we get to pray. 
We get to share these requests. And there are so, so many more. We get the blessing to do it together. And it will be a ministry pillar for our church. Praying to God with fervency. Last week's message and this week's message I have mentioned in, um, from this little booklet, A Call to Prayer by J.C. Ryle, which is just, it, it, it is, is so well done, what he has written here on prayer, and that's why I quoted from it so much. And um, the elders of, of our church wanted to make sure that every family or couple or single person received a copy of this. And so there's a box of them on that back table, and after church, we want to, after the service is over, we want to invite you. There's a copy for you to take home, and this will, this will bless you immensely. Someone said, you never attempt or test the resources of God until you attempt the impossible. And when our God is big, our prayer requests, pretty simple for a big God to handle. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious Father, we are so thankful for your word and what it has allowed us to see. And that you have created us to be dependent upon you for everything that we could ever need. Every need is accounted for, whether it's a physical need or a spiritual need or anything in between. And you know our needs. You know our needs, Father, before we even ask. And yet, it's your desire you want us to ask. And we have not because we ask not. And Father, I confess my own lack of prayer in my life. And I want to be more dependent upon you. And I know that many, many in this room have that same desire. I pray, Father, that we would all have that desire. I pray that you would do something special through the prayer ministry of our church. That not only would we be able to acknowledge the needs that we have and the petitions that we would bring before you, but that we would see your provision, that we would see your hand provide and supply what we need as we pray according to your will, as we pray with righteous heart motives. And Father, the rest is up to you. The rest is up to you to put your power on display through whatever way that you see fit. And we pray that it's mighty. We pray that it's overwhelming. We pray that it's so encouraging to our church corporately that we will be breaking down the doors to get into our facility to praise your name every time that we gather. And so, Lord, thank you for the ordained plan which you have and the prayer 
ministry that you want us to put to effective use. May it always be said of Cornerstone Bible Church, there's one thing about them I know. I visited that church, maybe somebody would say. They are a praying church. And it's our heartbeat to provide that testimony. We thank you, Lord, for this time. We ask that you'll uh, continue to strengthen uh, Mike as he's in the hospital and not even able to be here. We love him. We're so thankful for he and Sue. We thank you for uh, Andrew and Thea and our hearts ache for them as they go through this uh, enormous trial that you've ordained for them. And I pray, Father, that we would be burdened by your spirit to be lifting up these requests and all the requests that are on the prayer guide this week and all the weeks to come. And Father, we look forward to seeing how you glorify yourself. We give you all the praise and all the thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.